There's a difference between creating a buzz and creating a brand. There's a difference between a one-off stunt and an enduring brand story. There's a difference between an algorithm and a true insight into human nature. And there's a big difference between big data and a big idea. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and today we have an incredible guest, someone who I've been privileged to get to spend real time with over the last 15 years and was with us back at the beginning when Advertising Week uh, first took place in 2004, um, Keith Reinhardt. And Keith, I guess you're probably best known as uh, Chairman Emeritus now of DDB and one of the founders of Omnicom. But I'd love to start with you, Keith. Uh, going back to uh, Indiana. Okay. I read somewhere that you did not watch television as a young boy. Is that true? That is true. Um, this uh, I grew up in a little farming town, a Swiss Mennonite community called Bern, uh, Indiana, because all of the uh, settlers came from Bern, Switzerland. And uh, a very, very conservative Mennonite community. So even though television was uh, invented, uh, hadn't been around for long, but uh, we were not allowed to watch television. Uh, probably no one in the town, but certainly no one in uh, my family. Um, my uh, father had died uh, when I was three years old, so he was not around, but my grandfather was very strict and uh, no television. We were allowed to listen to the radio, uh, providing that uh, my granddad would have vetted the show so I could listen to Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy, and uh, and Captain Midnight, but I couldn't listen to Ellery Queen, Mysteries. Okay. okay. Uh, but but uh, there was a, a furniture dealer in town that, uh, rumor had it, he had a television set in the back of his store. And I managed to get an invitation one night to sneak into that uh room and see for the first time a television set all i could see on the screen was snow but uh it was it was very exciting television growing up as you did in that small town environment over time you've become one of the people who's treasured in america and globally as one of the great creative minds that we've ever produced. What were the hints back then? I'm not going to let you deny that, by the way. What were the hints going back to your, you know, time in Bern and in that little town in Indiana that you would one day have a career in creative industry? To be creative, you have to, you have to think in terms of breaking patterns and breaking rules. And there were so many rules in that town, in that uh, culture. Although, but I should say that I learned a lot from the local merchants and uh, and my teachers and even my Sunday school teachers and so forth. But I 
I didn't like all the rules. And so I was kind of a rule breaker from the beginning. But I, uh, I knew I wanted to get out of that environment. And uh, there must be a bigger world out there. Town had 1,500 people in it at the time. Um, and uh, my, my mother, my widowed mother, worked uh, in the town's only grocery store, very small little grocery store. And uh, the, the, the store was so small that we couldn't, uh, she couldn't display the promotional materials that came in from Kraft Foods and General Mills and, and Mars. And, uh, and so uh, she would bring them home to me and I would get to uh, study these posters and this promotional material. Who writes copy like uh, there's so much milk in a milky way you can almost hear it move? And who, who designs the logos? And, you know, Betty Crocker was my first pinup girl. So I studied those posters and I was intrigued by them. Uh, in terms of radio, I loved uh, the jingles. I mean, I loved listening to the shows, but I, I, I loved the jingle. I learned that this was advertising. In, in Bern, Indiana, nobody knew what advertising was. I mean, an ad was what you ran in the local paper to sell your car or sell your cow. But somewhere out there, I thought, I thought uh, there's people doing this stuff, people making these posters, designing them and writing the copy. So that was an influence. Another influence, the town had seven churches and seven furniture factories. And... Uh, one of the furniture factories was very famous for a long period of time. It's called Dunbar. They made high-priced furniture for Hollywood uh, homes and uh, cruise ship uh, uh, salons. And, and they had an advertising agency, uh, a woman named Margaret Hockaday. And uh, she had a New York agency, and her clients included uh, grants and a uh, few others, but Dunbar, for Dunbar, she did a campaign taking high-priced furniture and, and photographing it in a in a wheat field. Or uh, she'd take a high-priced uh, chair and turn it into a swing hanging from a tree. This amazing furniture in outside environments. And I thought, wow, would I love to do something like that at some point? That was an influence. I had no, uh, the high school had no art teacher. I wanted to be a, an artist, a commercial artist. But um, in my sophomore year, a kid from Detroit moved into our town and uh, he, he had a driver's license and he invited me to uh, go with him one weekend to see his aunt and uncle in Detroit and we'd see some, a Red Wings game or see the sights. And on a Saturday morning, he took me up to see his uncle working in an art studio in the Fisher Building, designing an ad for Cadillac. And I said, that, that's what I got to do. People get paid for doing this stuff. That's what I got to do. I got to find a way to get into advertising. So those were some of the, some of the influences, I guess, in small town Burn, Indiana.
Fantastic. And I know eventually you wound your way to Chicago and to Needham, Lewis, and Roby. Was there a job before that, or was that the first? Oh, are you kidding? Matt, I, there were so many detours and, and obstacles along the way. Uh, I was, by the time I got to Needham, Lewis, and Broby, I was 29 years old. I was the oldest beginning copywriter in that agency. I didn't even have a cubicle in those days. Everybody had cubicles or offices. They gave me a workstation next to the um, coffee and soda machine. And I couldn't concentrate on anything because I'm making change all day long for everybody in the agency. Hey, kid, you got change for a buck. So I couldn't really focus, but I got to know everyone in the agency. And that turned out to be, <laughs> that turned out to be a benefit as well. But um, my, my, my first assignment at the Needham agency was uh, radio. I had spent, prior to getting to Needham, I had spent time in uh, commercial art studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in Chicago, Illinois. The Kling Studio was the biggest art studio in the world. And Needham was a client there, but I never could get an interview with any of the Chicago agencies. Um, but finally, I get this interview with Needham, and uh, I show my book, because I think I'm an artist, commercial artist I thought it was a pretty good book and the creative director said well we don't have an opening for a beginning art director but we do have an opening for a beginning copywriter and I said I'll take it uh figuring I could do small newspaper ads you know I'd seen copy I'm sure I could do it and my first <laughs> my first assignment was radio I said radio I'm an art director what's radio uh, remembering the jingles, but um, and then they said we want you to do humorous radio commercials for State Farm Insurance. Radio and humor? How do you? <laughs> so I asked my copy chief, uh, a sort of a doer guy, for some tips on how you how you write humor, and he looks over his glasses at me and he said you. You go back to your typewriter and type until until you laugh. And when you laugh, bring me what made you laugh. And if I laugh, it's funny. If I don't laugh, then you go back and type some more. And I couldn't I couldn't make him laugh. Um, but finally, he went on summer holiday, and the account guys were getting kind of nervous because we had some deadlines. And uh, I showed him my scripts and. Some of them smiled and some of them laughed. Carries its own spare inside. Lifeguard safety spare. A tire in a tire. And they said, we got to take this down to Bloomington Next time. to the client. And we made the client laugh and uh, came back to the agency. They gave me the agency's top broadcast producer, Christopher Ford, father of Harrison Ford. And he took me to Hollywood, and we got some talent, and we put together some radio commercials and and uh, worked pretty well, got some awards, and that sort of was an inflection point. But but prior to getting to, getting to Needham, I was working in commercial art studios and film studios. I went to South America with a film crew, always at the edges of the business, knowing what I really wanted to do was get into the ad-making, ad-creating business. and. Needham provided me finally with the uh, 
opportunity to do that. So that inflection point, that really marked the beginning of your rise forward. It is, is to be there when he needs you and provide the service that he deserves. Like a good So you rise up the ladder at Needham, um, and I don't want to jump too far ahead. Uh, I want to ultimately get to um, where you and Alan and and some others created what became Omnicom. But talk about your rise up the ladder at Needham and what you know what you remember with particular fondness from that era. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Uh, I, I know you remember. <laughs> I, um, well, you know, I got to be a, a, a copy chief and uh, had a team of, uh, you know, four to six uh, writers. But back at Needham, this this was before Burnback had decided art directors and writers should uh, work together as a team. Uh, at Needham and all the other agencies, we had departments. I was in the copy department. And if you were working on a print assignment, you would write a copy for a print ad and then a traffic person would come along at the end of the day and pick up your copy and the next day you would hand it to somebody in the art department. If you were uh, writing for a television commercial, you'd write a commercial and they would hand it to somebody the next day in the television art department. So, but I had a little team and uh, we, uh, the tough thing was going from uh, creating advertising to inspiring others and leading others. But uh, I found that fascinating, the, the concept of um, leadership, the, uh, the idea of causing others to, uh, to, to try and do great work. And uh, I, I really was fascinated by that. And so by and by, I got to be uh, one of the uh, four creative directors of that Chicago agency. And by that time, I had a pretty large group. And by that time, we were integrated. So art directors and writers were working together. Uh, then then uh, they decided to have, uh, at one point, a single head of creative. And uh, and I, I, was, I was named the creative director of, by that time, Needham, Harper, and Steers in Chicago. So uh, then I was working on all the accounts. I mean, we this was the time when we we won the McDonald's business. Uh, I was we were still working for Mars, many brands of General Mills uh, and uh, Armor. We had uh, Household Finance and. Uh, whole roster of accounts. And it was great working on uh, all these uh, different brands and uh, being director, creative director of this uh, very, very large agency. Uh, Paul Harper um, decided uh, he needed a succession plan. Paul was the Harper of Needham Harper Worldwide or Needham Harper and Steers at that time. And uh, he had a very interesting way of of uh, planning his succession. There was no way a creative director was going to succeed him as, as uh, head of, of, the, of the agency. 
but uh, he decided to uh, give uh, questions to about five candidates, how they would see the future of the agency, and ask us to uh, present uh, our vision for the future of the agency at a uh, national conference. And uh, he liked my presentation. And to everyone's surprise, he put me in charge of the Chicago agency, which was the business, uh, the biggest agency in the Needham network at that time. And uh, so I was president of Needham Harper Steers Chicago. And uh, I, I, I enjoyed that. I, I loved the idea of uh, assembling a team and uh, trying to uh, inspire them and coach them and then reward them for uh, doing great work. It was always about creativity. Uh, the emphasis was never in doubt. It was always about creativity. And of course, as a creative uh, person and a creative director coming up through the ranks, I was a great admirer of Bill Burnback and a lot of our advertising for uh, Xerox and others uh, looked a lot like Doyle Dane Burnback. And uh, that instilled, sparked a dream of someday maybe uh, putting those two agencies together. Mostly in creative people, I look for a deep insight into human nature because I think the real basis for persuasion is to understand what motivates a man. What I had said was that uh, the writer is concerned with what he puts into his writing. The communicator is concerned not just with what he puts into a piece of writing, but with what the reader gets out of it. He therefore becomes a student of how people read and how they listen. He learns that most readers come away from their reading not with a clear, precise, detailed registration of its contents on their minds, but rather with a vague, misty idea which was formed as much by the pace and the proportions and the music of the writing as by the literal words themselves. And he learns that the reader reads with his ego, his emotions, with his compulsions, his prejudices, his urges, and his aspirations, and that he plots with his brain to rationalize the facts until they become the tools of his desire. But my dream was to somehow put the Needham Agency together with Doyle Dane Burnback because our philosophies were alike. I mean, uh, we were all about creativity and breaking the pattern and uh, the importance of surprise. And uh, so I approached... Uh, I was CEO then of Needham Worldwide Network. We were ranked number 16 at that time. Doyle Dane was number 12. And I approached the uh, management uh, of Doyle Dane in 1984 and said, uh, you know, we have so much alike and you guys are strong in Europe and we're strong in Asia and you're strong in New York and we're strong in the Midwest and this would be a perfect fit. And they really... They really weren't interested. So I went to the uh, Allen Company and uh, was in the uh, process of putting together a bid to buy Doyle Dane Burnback. And uh, at the same time, Allen Rosenshine, who I knew uh, a bit, I mean, we sort of came up in the industry together, and he was also a copywriter turned CEO. And we started having a series of breakfasts. And one morning he said... Uh, you know, maybe BBDO and Needham can do something together. 
because the agency was entering into a period of consolidation, as you know. And I said, you know, I like you, Alan. I, I admire BBDO, but my heart is with Doyle Dane Burnback. And Alan said, you know, that's interesting. We've also been thinking about Doyle Dane Burnback. And it was there that we hatched the idea for a three-way merger that would bring BBDO, DDB, and Needham together under one holding company, the uh, philosophy uh, of which was, and focus was creativity. Uh, Interpublic had proved that you could market more than one brand of, of uh, advertising agency, but we wanted to focus on create. You had to be a recognized creative agency to be in this club. And those three agencies were. And uh, so that was the, uh, that was the inspiration for it. Uh, Doyle Dane then agreed to uh, at least have some conversations. And even though they were being uh, uh, courted by the Sachis at that same time, uh, we were able to prevail with our idea of a holding company. It didn't have a name yet. Um, I wanted to call it Aardvark because it would start with two A's and we'd top of the list of the Wall Street listings, but that seemed a little bit of a stretch. Where did the Omnicom name come from? That was Alan Rosenshine's uh, creation. And uh, he said, uh, what do you think of Omnicom? I said, well, can we spell it A-A-H-M Omnicom? So we'll still have double A's at the top of the list. But anyway, that's that's it was a long series of... Uh, Meetings, as you can imagine, we had to keep it secret because two of the three companies were public companies, and so we couldn't let word uh, leak out. But on uh, April 26th, I think, 1986, we had a press conference. The, the industry was taken by surprise. Uh, the media called it the Big Bang, and it was uh, a few months before we came up with a name that... Uh, and became Omnicom. Why Bill Burnback, such a, a revered figure in the industry who I know you held in such high regard, what was it about Bill that you found so compelling? First of all, before Bill, the high priest of advertising had all kinds of formulas, and Ross Reeves had his USP, and, uh, you know, uh, repetition, repetition, hammer in the head, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember the uh, film, uh, 1947 film, The Hucksters. Sidney Greenstreet is the uh, client, and uh, Clark Gable's the account guy. And Sidney Green says, you know why we sell soap? His brand was beauty soap. He said, because we know how to advertise. We out-advertise them and out-sell them, but on less money. Does that convey a thought to you? It does to me. It means to me that we know what we are doing. Well, sales principles are not theories. They're proven facts. Example, beauty soap, beauty soap, beauty soap. Repeat it, it comes out of their ears. Repeat it till they say it in their sleep. Irritate them, Mr. Norman. Irritate, irritate, irritate them. Never forget, irritate them, knock them dead. See what I mean? And that was sort of a, some, maybe a slight exaggeration of what advertising high priests believe in those days. Bill said, no, this is not right. You don't beat things into people's head. You engage them. You engage their intellect. You engage their emotions. You engage their sense of humor. You use wit. And you tell stories. 
Everybody talks about change all the time. I think advertising essentially, the persuasion part of advertising, is going to be the same a hundred years from now. Because the man with talent will be able to persuade and the man without talent won't, no matter how much knowledge you bring to him, no matter what mechanical devices you have. We have a great television complex in our offices now. We've moved and we were able to take advantage of all the new inventions. But I've got to tell you that those new inventions aren't going to uh, create a great new idea. And I keep telling that to our people. That little thing sitting by yourself and getting an idea is far more important than all the technology in the world. Lemon was a story. Lemon, the great Volkswagen classic, was a story about a little Volkswagen bug that would never see a showroom floor. Because even though this wouldn't be uh, observable to a customer, an inspector in Wolfsburg, Germany, had spotted a glitch on the glove box. And therefore, this Volkswagen will miss the boat and never see the showroom floor. Story, his original client that he brought from uh, Gray Advertising, where he was uh, creative director, and working alongside with Paul Rand, the great designer, which gave him the idea that art directors and writers had to work together, but Orbach's, the story about Joan, that great ad with the cat with a hat and a long cigarette holder, and the copy written sort of in horse uh, belt, well, it was very catty. I found out about Joan. To look at her, the way she dresses, you'd think that she was married to a Wall Street banker. She doesn't even have a bank account. But the other day, walking downtown, I spotted Joan coming out of Orbach's. The story. Stories are so powerful. He understood that and appealing to the emotion. And he warned people that this is about art, not science. I warn you against trying to turn art advertising into a science. Uh, the idea of making advertising that people talked about, he said, word of mouth is the best medium of all. What a great insight and how applicable to today. Because now we have word of web. We can get people to not only talk about our advertising, but share it with each other online. So many things he said back in the 50s and 60s have application today. And my dream was to, with my talented uh, colleagues, build a worldwide network built on those insights and philosophies, those insights into advertising, communication, and human nature. He said, people talk about the changing man. We have to be concerned about unchanging man, the obsession, the obsessive drives to survive, to succeed, to be loved, to belong, to take care of our own. Those things never change. I just, uh, I was so enthralled by the philosophy and then by the way he put the teams together uh, and gave them freedom. Phyllis Robinson, his first copy chief, they said, well, what was so great about Doyle Dane Burnback? He said, well, we're just free. We're free to do whatever we want. And the great Helmut Crone, and I got to know those people really well, and Bob Gage, um, giants but inspired and put together by Bill Burnback.
we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about uh, probably the client that people think of first when they think of Keith Reinhardt and when you mentioned, and that's McDonald's. Uh, an amazing opportunity. And uh, they were looking for um, a national agency. They didn't have McDonald's uh, restaurants all across the country in uh, 1970. But uh, Ray Kroc, the founder, said, I want advertising now in all 50 states so that when we put a restaurant in that city, people will know about it. People will want to come because they've heard about it. They've seen advertising for it. And so McDonald's uh, had an agency uh, search. I think they started with six. Uh, They got down to three. And uh, I was uh, chosen to lead the creative part of the presentation for the Needham agency. Uh, The rules were, you may not present creative. You must... uh, you must answer 10 questions, uh, and uh, we will make our decision based on your answers to those 10 questions. But you can't show creative. So how are we going to do this? Um, I was given two questions. One was, does McDonald's have, is there one characteristic or attribute that is so outstanding it should be our USP, or unique selling proposition? And my uh, and the other question I was given was, uh, what what should we do with Ronald McDonald? So again, no no creative on the Ronald McDonald question. I went to visit Chuck Jones in California. Chuck Jones, who the creator of Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner and all those other characters. And uh, I said uh, we have some research that shows Ronald is not a very strong character. In fact, some people, some of the kids think he's a bit of a wuss. What What are your suggestions? And Chuck Jones said, well, you know, he's, he's too perfect. You've got to have uh, some uh, imperfections. People are only interesting because of their imperfections. And if you want to make him a hero, he's got to have a nemesis. So, okay, uh, a nemesis. And after we won account, won the account, that was the insight that led me to. It. I'm the father of the Hamburglar. One morning at 4:30, what kind of a you know we were talking about uh, monsters and pirates and whatever. 4:30 in the morning, I wake up. Burger sounds like burglar. Burger Hamburglar. I call my art director partner Rudy and I say, uh, I think I got it. Hamburglar. And on the train coming into the agency, he sketched out the Groucho Marx posture and the striped prison uniform, and we had the Hamburglar. How Hamburglar got his stripes. In McDonald's land a long time back, a stranger showed up dressed all in black. Rubble, rubble. <laughs> he followed Ronald and Grimace that day and tried to take their burgers away. <laughs> but he couldn't have them. So he just grabbed him. Uh-oh. Who's that? The Hamburglar. Bye-bye. I'll stop this Hamburglar guy. And that's how Hamburglar got his stripes. Yikes! My big uh, moment in the presentation was uh, changing the slide. USP, click. Unique selling proposition, 
change to unique selling personality. And we said, there are many selling propositions. And what we will give you is a unique selling personality within which to stage all of these selling propositions. And uh, I had had the creative department put together creative headlines, but I had them pinned on a wall and I presented them as selling propositions. And of course, you know, we had white type on black backgrounds and so they weren't ads, they were selling propositions. Anyway, we won the business and in January 1971, we were told we were the new agency for McDonald's and uh, now we had to come up with campaigns for both the adult audience and the kid audience. And what a victory that was. Fantastic. And was that around the time when you came up with You Deserve a Break Today, or was that before that? No. This was when we we didn't have a campaign. We had a bunch of research and some ideas that we had had uh, started to work on in, in terms of uh, print headlines and so forth. But now we had to really get to work. And uh, this is... Uh, I'll see if I can make this as succinct as possible. But we we had research that said uh, housewives, as they were called in that day, uh, really wanted to get a, get out of the house uh, one or two nights a week, at least once a week, and, and get away from cooking and meal planning. And also, uh, dads would like to take the family out to uh, dinner, but the high cost of eating out was substantial and uh so and kids would like to get away from broccoli and table manners and so we um, had this idea that those mcdonald's stores in those days white and red brick stores with the golden uh, neon arches if you looked at the night scene of a city you saw those spotted around the cityscape and they looked like little islands and so our recommendation was come to the McDonald's Islands. This is the escape you need from your meal planning, from your high prices, from your broccoli. Come to the McDonald's Islands. We wrote a jingle and we were in Hollywood shooting the second day, come to the McDonald's Islands. And uh, Fred Turner, who by that time was CEO of McDonald's said, this is fantastic, best advertising I've ever seen. Uh, new guidance for Wall Street, and we get a call in Hollywood from McDonald's Legal saying, you can't use McDonald's Islands. What? Because a root beer chain in Nebraska or somewhere calls their outlets Islands of Pleasure, so you can't use it. And now we have some footage in the can, we have a deadline coming up, and we have no campaign. So... <laughs> I called the two best music uh, writers in New York, uh, got on a plane, flew to New York, and met with both of them, chose Sid Woolison. And I said, we got to have a new campaign. And he said, well, what's your line? Well, we don't really have a line. It's like, get away to McDonald's. And we started writing lyrics and, and, and tunes and came up with uh, a, a sound that was like a Broadway show and really, really had lots of energy going for it. But the line at the end was, we're so near yet far away, so get up and get away to McDonald's. Get it? 
McDonald said, oh, we love the feeling. It's great. What do they say at the end? Well, they say we're so near geographically, yet far away. So get up and get away to McDonald's. And they say, well, we love everything but that line. So now we have seven notes that need words and we've sold a campaign. So we go back into the research and women did use the word break from time to time. So we, which, which note gets break? And I remember typing, you deserve a break today. So get up and get away to McDonald's. And I called Sid Wollison in New York and I said, I think I've got it. Uh, Sid, here it is. You deserve a break today. And he said, it's not singable. And I said, Sid, if you don't sing it, I'll find somebody who'll sing it. And uh, so he found a way to sing it. And that's how it was. Grab a bucket and mop. Scrub the bottom and top. There is nothing so clean as my burger machine. With a broom and a brush. Clean it up for the rush. Before you open the door. What a shine on the floor. When we finish one then. Start all over again. Tell me what does it mean? At McDonald's it's a little bit about Keith the 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 change of the business from one that you know we often again I'll use that word romance again and today so much of the business is about data and about uh, metrics and um, you know separation of creative and media now they seem to be you know in many ways coming back together again do you lament the loss of that period and what it meant, or is there just no stopping the wheel of progress? Well, the way the way I look at it, and and you're you're quite right in your observations. I mean, there was uh, more romance uh, back then, but if you think of the uh, modern history of advertising in three unequal parts, the first uh, I'll start with the middle of the last century and Bill Burnback who ignited the creative revolution, and that lasted for almost a half a century. Uh, by, by the end of the 20th century, we had the digital disruption, and we got so obsessed with technology that we started to lose, the, uh, lose sight of the basics. Um, we, we became so enamored with our new toys that we sometimes did things that we didn't need to do or shouldn't have done just because we could. And we became obsessed with the tools and, um, and we lost sight. And I began to call this period the digital distraction instead of the digital disruption because we were losing sight of the uh, basics of brand building, the basics of storytelling, emotional connections, and so forth. And then I think uh, maybe two or three years ago, we started to come out of that saying, okay, this abundance of of technology will never end. There's a new invention every day. So now we're in uh, what I call the uh, ultimate revolution, where we take all the things that Bill taught us in the creative revolution about 
engaging the consumer, respecting the intelligence of the consumer, telling stories, and uh, combining those I, those uh, insights with the tools we now have, the amazing possibilities we have with technology today. Uh, and what will be revealed, what is being revealed, I believe, in this uh, particular uh, revelation, the ultimate revelation, is there's a difference between creating a buzz and creating a brand. There's a difference between a one-off stunt and an enduring brand story. There's a difference between an algorithm and a true insight into human nature. There's definitely a difference between a click and a, and a real connection with a brand. And there's a big difference between big data and a big idea. And then to your other point, there's a, there's a difference between, or I mean, what else will be revealed is uh, that media and creative should never have been separated. That was not for effectiveness. That was for uh, cost saving and efficiency. And it was the probably the biggest blow to the advertising agency that we've seen is taking the media practice away from the creative practice and making them separate. Uh, but that's a different uh, story. So I think we're in good shape now, um, having the great tools and using them as tools, but also understanding the importance of brands, the importance of storytelling in all the media, and uh, the importance of uh, making true connections with consumers, brands connecting with consumers, and uh, building loyalty. Brands are more important than ever, I think, now. You know, Brandless was a, was a startup. Remember Brandless? And they went, out of, they went out of business earlier this year. People need brands. People need brands, and that's what we're about. It's what we've always been about. Somebody said, well, we need to redefine advertising. I don't think so. I think advertising has always been about connecting people with brands, and that's what it's about today. And uh, so I think eventually uh, we'll uh, come to that understanding that we don't need all these uh, sub you know, social media, this and that. It's all advertising. Fantastic. Well, I'd love to close just by uh, your remembrances of the guy who brought you and I together back way back when, which was the late, great uh, Ken Case. Right. Ken was uh, our first chairman of Advertising Week when we started and spoke that night at Gracie Mansion. I'm sure you remember that. Sure. And, uh, And I'd love just to get some of your thoughts and memories of Ken. Well, Ken, you know, when it came time for me to try and choose my own succession, um, I had, uh, first of all, uh, Ken was uh, in Los Angeles. Every time I went to DDB Los Angeles, I, there, was, there was energy. It was palpable. There was joy even uh, in the workplace. And... Uh, I kept trying to figure out how, how this happened. And I learned that it wasn't the number one guy who was doing a, a good job as far as that goes, but, but the energy was coming from the number two guy, a guy named Ken Case. So I uh, brought him to New York, and uh, he claims I summoned him to New York. I, 
claimed I invited him to New York, but I said, Ken, you have to come and run DDB New York and uh, got him to do that. And he did a brilliant job. And so uh, not too long after I uh, promoted him to uh, president of uh, North America. And again, he excelled. And so um, when it came time for me to uh, choose somebody to be CEO for the entire DDB Worldwide Network, I sort of did what uh, Paul Harper had done uh, that led to uh, my selection. I said, uh, okay, there are six of you. And my two top top lieutenants were more or less my age, so they were they were not uh, candidates to succeed me. And uh, the three of us, Bernard Brochon, John Bradstock, and I took these six candidates to uh, dinner one night here in New York. And we said, it was Thanksgiving, and we said, by Christmas, uh, I would like to have a letter from each of you um, saying how you see the future of DDB worldwide. So they all sent letters, and then I said, I'll share them with you after I've uh, looked at them and reviewed them. And uh, Ken's was the best. And somebody said, he he got a consultant to help him. I said, I didn't say there were any rules against getting a consultant. to." So he got the job. And uh, we didn't lose any of those other candidates. They all respected Ken. Ken was a person who was loved throughout the network. He had a way with people. He was always, hey, buddy, how you doing? Patting somebody on the shoulder if they were having a bad day, congratulating them if they were having a good day. Uh, he was unlike uh, anyone I'd ever, uh, ever met in his uh, charisma, his, his ability to uh, build teams that respected him and that actually loved him. So losing Ken after such a short time was one of the biggest blows to my career. Yeah, no, he was such a charismatic guy and, and that, that big smile he had. And I guess you ended up getting one of the conference rooms named after him at DDB. Indeed. I told uh, his, his kids at the, uh, at the service that uh, we would always remember and, his, and that their dad's name would be uh, mentioned every day. Because people would say, I want to book the Ken Case Room. And that was the room where you and he and Birch and others uh, hatched the idea for Advertising Week, which has become, what a success. What a success. Well, thanks. Listen, and you've been kind enough. We had you in Tokyo with us a couple years ago in Mexico City. And what most impressed me about you is even where you are now in life in your 80s, you sit there and take notes. And most of our keynoters, you know, roll in a few minutes before they're going on stage and roll off right afterwards. But you're there listening, learning, uh, sharing your learnings with young people. Uh, and it's been a joy to travel uh, around the world with you and to be, you know, just a little star in your orbit. Such an admirer of what you've been able to build and uh, wish you lots and lots of good luck. All right. Well, you're the best. Stay healthy and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you, man. Bye.
Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 